Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The human experience is traversing the realms of the mind-body connection as we speak to my guest, Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Mate, it's an honor, sir. Welcome back to HXP. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Dr. Mate, your work has affected millions of people worldwide. Why do you think people connect so much to the, the language and the potency of your message? It's only that as a medical physician, as a doctor, I have the uh, experience and the scientific knowledge and language uh, to put into words and to explain in um, my scientific language or medical language something that people already know intuitively. So in a Western world, there's this separation between intuitive knowledge and uh, what we call scientific knowledge. What I happen to know is that the teachings of intuitive knowledge about the mind-body unity and the inseparability of our emotional and spiritual lives from our physical existence has been proven by modern science and uh, voluminous research. And I'm able to have access to that research and able to translate that to people. So really what people find themselves doing when they read my work or they hear me speak is that they recognize the truth of their own experience and they have if you if because they need this in this world some validation for their own experience now ideally people shouldn't have to have their experience validated by an expert but in our world which uh, denigrates uh, intuitive knowledge and uh, the knowledge of the heart it's helpful to people to have that knowledge confirmed by uh, science and that's i think what i do reasonably well yeah yeah i mean why do you think western medicine is so backwards in this regard i mean why why do you think that more physicians aren't discussing this in this way i mean you you say that western medicine western medicine considers disease idiopathic which means they don't know what causes it i mean why do you think this is well Western science for hundreds of years now has separated mind from the body. And that's not strictly a function of science. That's really reflects the nature of the society that we live in. Because we do live in a society where human beings, um, for the most part, are considered to be um, considered to have utilitarian value. In other words, the value of an individual is defined by how much wealth they create for others or for themselves or how much they consume, Mm -hmm. which is strictly a physical way of defining human beings. So the ideology of of, of separating the mind from the body uh, permeates this society, not just the medical profession, not just the scientific world, but the whole society. And medicine being a part of this culture reflects the general ideological perspective, number one. Number two, uh, physicians are comfortable with quantifiable data such as laboratory results and x-ray results and imaging findings. They're not comfortable with uh, uh, issues that are 
emotionally uncomfortable. For example, trauma, which is a major factor in all the illnesses as far as I'm concerned, especially mental illness, addiction, and so on, but also in physical illness like cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, multiple sclerosis. Even though the research shows the unity of mind and body and the research shows the emotional um, antecedents of physical illness, for most physicians, given that their training doesn't touch upon that, that's very uncomfortable territory. And so they tend to resist or not to pay attention to that kind of research or knowledge, despite the fact that it's published in major uh, medical journals and scientific publications. So it's that split that permeates the whole society that's also reflected in the medical profession. And also, of course, doctors are short on time, they're stressed people, very often themselves they're traumatized people. <laughs> and, and so that, A, they don't want to deal with their own stuff, and secondly, to delve into the mind-body unity and, and, and to talk to people about their emotional lives in the context of physical illness, that demands time. And in modern medical economics, doctors don't have that kind of time. And also, there's one more thing, which is the very success of Western medicine. I mean, let's face it, uh, my 91-year-old mother-in-law would have not have been alive for six years now, at least, or more, had she not had amazing heart valve surgery. And uh, I know people who are brought back from the brink of death by the successes and amazing um, achievements of Western medicine. And just because we're so very successful with those physical modalities, we tend to ignore the other part of it. Now, most disease is not amenable to these heroic interventions. But we tend not to recognize that because where we are successful, we're so spectacularly successful. Right. I mean, what's, what is happening, Dr. Mate, when there, you know, between the brain and the body, when we, and you mentioned trauma, when we experience trauma, when we're suffering from disease and illness, I mean, how, how do you feel that the body is kind of sending these signals into the brain? Well, it's really very simple. Um, if I were in the same room with you right now, and if I threatened you <clears throat> with a weapon or physically um, became aggressive towards you, the first thing you'd experience appropriately enough would be fear. If you didn't experience fear, you'd be in trouble because that fear would then help you alert you that there's danger and you need to do something about it. <clears throat> now, in response to the emotion of fear, the um, hypothalamus in your brain would uh, release some hormones which would then activate another gland in the brain called the pituitary gland which would then send messages to your adrenal gland on top of your kidneys to release the stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. Adrenaline and cortisol help you mount the flight or fight response. They give you more energy, they give you more strength, they make you faster, uh, they permit you, enable you to mount a defensive response without which you would not survive. That's in the short term. But those same hormones, if they lasted at a high level in your body for a long time, would significantly damage your health. We know this. So adrenaline would increase your risk of heart disease and strokes, narrow your blood vessels, make you anxious. Cortisol would thin your bones, ulcerate your intestines, suppress your immune system, increase the risk of heart disease, make you depressed, so on and so on and so on. So in other words, the short-term triggering of the stress response helps you survive. 
the long-term triggering of it kills you or causes illness. And what trauma does, when trauma happens to people, and usually it happens in childhood, it potentiates a long-term activation of our stress responses. So that, uh, let's say, if you're a traumatized child who were, say, uh, just to take an extreme example, beaten by your parents, mm-hmm. you might have a lot of fear out there in the world. You always be, would be very defensive because you believe that the world is very hostile. That's how you experienced it. Now, if you live in a hostile world, you're always in a fear mode. And you're, and you're very quickly triggered into that stress response, that flight or fight response. So that means those hormones are now acting against you rather than for you. Not to mention early trauma also triggers long-term processes of inflammation in the body. So that children that were traumatized, you measure a certain number of inflammatory proteins in their bloodstream as adults, they're elevated because of the childhood experience. So they're more likely to get diseases of inflammation including heart disease, including uh, uh, autoimmune disease, and so on. So there are many, many, many ways, and I could really spend the whole day just talking about the ways in which trauma potentiates illness. But really, it's a very simple, straightforward physiological connection. There's nothing uh, abstruse about it. There's nothing uh, hidden about it. Right. I mean, what is the difference between a person who is, someone who has suffered trauma and reacting healthily towards stress and someone someone who who probably you know ha, ha, is living a normal life and and dealing with minor kind of hassles i mean what's the, what's the difference that's happening there in regards to dealing with stress and how a person re- reacts to a trigger event well the traumatized person reacts with an extreme overreaction to mind to relatively minor events uh, a non-traumatized person will react appropriately so that the stress response, you know, let, let's say you're not traumatized, but I were to threaten you somehow, then you would mount a stress response that would be appropriate to the situation, and once the situation was resolved, your, your stress response would abate and you would go back to your normal, regular, healthy state. But if you were a traumatized person, your reaction would be over the top, uh, you would have your brain would be flooded by the stress hormones, and you'd actually have less capability to know what to do in order to protect yourself. And the emotional and physiological impact of the incident would last a lot longer. And for traumatized people, this happens day after day after day because they get re-triggered by whatever happens in their relationship with their spouse or partner or, or fellow workers or employees or employers or out there in the street. You know, they they, they react to everything. Uh, whether they're aware of it or not, <clears throat> they react to everything in a way <clears throat> that is beyond the needs of the actual situation and lasts a lot longer than a situation. So they're constantly under stress, whether they recognize it or not. And often they don't, because when you're used to stress, a stress state feels normal to you. So you don't even know that you're being stressed. Hmm. Yeah, it's very, it's very intriguing. I mean, you, you also discuss... Who, that who gets sick and who doesn't isn't accidental. Can you expound on that a bit? Well, in my book, When the Body Says No, which explores the stress disease connection, I interviewed a lot of people, and I also, with the illnesses, and I also uh, drew upon my own clinical experience as a physician and a palliative care doctor. And um, tr- 
truly over time you get to notice that especially when you're as a family physician as I was, you get to see people before they got sick. And you get to see whole families. See the specialist only sees people after they're sick. No healthy person goes to a specialist. So that the specialist never sees them in their pre-disease state, whereas I did. And what I found that the people that were prone to chronic illnesses like uh, cancer, autoimmune disease, like rheumatoid arthritis, colitis, Crohn's disease, chronic fatigue, um, Lyme disease, um, uh, psoriasis, chronic asthma, multiple sclerosis, ALS, Parkinson's, I could carry on the long list. Mm-hmm. They have certain characteristics. Uh, one of them is they tended not to be aware of their emotional needs and very often tended to be more concerned with the emotional needs of others at, at the risk of their own, number one. Number two, um, they tended to have a rigid identification with duty, role, and responsibility. So rather than uh, knowing who they were just as human beings valid in their own right, they sought to identify identify themselves with the work that they did and with how other people saw them, which meant they were constantly striving to do more and more and more. And they were never comfortable just being. That was the second characteristic. The third one, for the most part, they had great difficulty experiencing, let alone expressing anger in a healthy way. So uh, there is such a thing as healthy anger. And um, it's a boundary defense. These people very often tend to be nice and they learned very early in life. This is not their fault, by the way. I'm not talking about character defects. What I'm talking about here are ways of coping that people develop to deal with their childhoods. So if you grew up in a family where you're not allowed to be angry, otherwise your parents would be really down on you, then how you survive? You survive by repressing your anger, which doesn't mean that the anger goes away. It just means that it works against you rather than for you. And given that we know have, we have the scientific evidence now for the actual uh, unity of the emotional centers in the brain with the immune apparatus and the hormonal apparatus and the nervous system, when you're suppressing emotions, you're also having an impact on your immune system and your nervous system and your uh, hormonal apparatus. And so the repression of anger is a major risk factor for all manner of illnesses. And it's almost universal in people with uh, autoimmune disease and, 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 and most cancers. Uh, the final characteristic, the fourth one then, is a belief that you're responsible for other people feel and coupled with the belief that you must never disappoint anybody. Which means you keep doing things that may harm you or be stressful for you, but you're doing it to appease others. Now these things create stress. You were going to say about anger. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say, you know... It, Anger, how do we measure anger in a healthy way? And also, it's, I mean, you say that it's a, it's, a, it's a defense against boundaries. I mean, do you, do you find that people with maladjusted kind of boundaries or people who suffer, are suffering from excess stress or people who have been traumatized, are their boundaries kind of thinner? Are they, they're different boundaries, right? Well, look, first of all, Let's take a, a child who is sexually abused, okay? When you talk to these people as adults and you ask them the question, uh, when were you abused? Well, when I was five, how long did it go on? Two years. Who did you speak to about it? The answer uniformly is nobody. 
Now think about that for a moment. If you had a five-year-old child and somebody even looked at it in the wrong way, who would you want them to speak to? If this is your, ch- if this is your child, yeah, you want them to talk to you. If you found out, Xavier, for that, just for the sake of a thought experiment, if you th- found out that your five-year-old had been violated that way and had not talked to you, how would you explain that? I don't know. It would be a really hard situation. No, but I'm asking you, how would you understand why your child is not talking to you? But there is an explanation, which is that the child didn't trust you to protect her. That the child learned that you weren't available for her. Now, for young children, the parents are the necessary boundary. The child, the infant, has no boundaries. The, The parent has to be the boundary, and through the proper boundaries of the parent, the boundaries that the, the parents draw around the child, the child learns to have boundaries. These children who are abused, they're picked on precisely because that boundary is lacking, because already they lost the relationship with the parents. So trauma itself has to do with the loss of boundaries. Now, when the child is being violated like that, what do they feel? Like if, if, if you're, if, let's just imagine somebody inappropriately, you as an adult, try to force themselves on you. What emotion would you have? What's the first, what's the first emotion you'd have? I would be shocked. You'd be angry, is that what you mean? Yeah, anger too. Of, of, of course you'd be angry because that anger is your protection. So anger is a boundary protection. But what can a, what can a five-year-old child do with the anger in a, against an abusive adult? A five-year-old child who's got no support from their parents. What can they do with that anger? They're can defenseless, they express? yeah. Can they express the anger? It would be hard for them to express the anger. Well, if they did, if they did, they would put their lives in danger. Because anger means they're going to fight back. And how is the child going to fight back against an adult? So that the child's survival depends on repressing the anger. And that becomes a life pattern. That's how they survived. Now, all their lives now, they're afraid of anger. And they're very, very nice all the time. But that means their boundaries are being invaded all the time and they're not protecting themselves. So healthy anger is nothing but a boundary defense. Healthy anger is a boundary defense that occurs in the moment. If I were to violate your boundaries right now, even as we speak to one another, and you said, Gabor, don't talk to me like that, that would be a healthy expression of anger. And it would be healthy because it would be appropriate to the situation. It would protect your boundaries. And it's over as soon as the threat is gone. Now, that's the healthy way to deal with anger. The un- unhealthy way to deal with anger, un- sorry, the unhealthy way to deal with anger <clears throat> has two possibilities. <clears throat> Excuse me. One is to repress the anger so you barely even experience it. And the other is uh, to become a rageaholic where the anger bursts out of you for no reason or for no adequate reason and it keeps going on and going on and going on. And both the person who represses anger and both the per- and the person who is a rageaholic, where the anger is volcanic, they're both at risk for health. In the first case, for cancer or autoimmune disease. In the second case, for heart disease. Because both the repression or the volcanic eruption of anger have significant impacts on our immune systems and our, our, our cardiovascular system. And you've measured this. You've, I mean, you've studied this through through your patients and. Well, not 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 only I've studied it. There's been thousands of research papers on, on, on these relationships. It's not 
it's not scientifically difficult. I mean, again, you know, if you understand that human beings are unified entities where the emotions and the hormones and the nerves and the cardiovascular system and the immune system, these are all aspects of our survival mechanism, then how could they possibly be uh, separated? And how could it be possibly imagined that when something occurs in one aspect of that one aspect of that system, that that wouldn't have affected the other parts of the system? Now, this also means that when people get diagnosed with a condition, say multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis, the condition does not exist uh, as an abstract, isolated entity by itself. It reflects the life of a person and that person's relationship to themselves. And that means that the diagnosis need not be a chronic jail sentence or a death sentence. Depending on how the person man is helped to deal with it, if, they, if, if they're brought to understand that these lifelong emotional patterns do have an impact on their physiology, and by changing those patterns, they can actually alter the physiology in a healthy way, it means that multiple sclerosis can actually be greatly mitigated or even reversed. And, I, and I've known many examples of that. Even more fatal diseases like ALS, I know people who've survived that by changing their relationship to themselves. I'm not saying it's easy, nor am I saying that everybody can be cured, but I'm saying that millions and millions and millions of people could lead much healthier lives if this basic scientific awareness somehow was infused into medical practice, but it isn't. And the word trauma is not even mentioned in medical schools for the most part. So, the, I mean, the core message here is that disease represents how we are living our lives. Yes, and some aspects of that are obvious, like if you smoke or if, if, if you're a poor person with poor jobs prospects and you live in a highly polluted area, we know you're going to die much earlier than somebody who's wealthy, doesn't smoke, and doesn't live in a polluted area. So those things are obvious. The part that is less, that is largely unknown by my profession is that how we relate to our how we relate to ourselves emotionally on a day-to-day moment by moment basis also has a huge significant impact. So that's what I concentrate on and when the body says no, is 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 our emotional relationship to ourselves. Because that's the hidden one. The 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 book when it originally came out in Canada, the subtitle was So When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress. Mm-hmm. And that to me is a more accurate title. The American title, subtitle is Exploring the Stress-Disease Connection, which is not inaccurate, but the Canadian subtitle, The Cost of Hidden Stress, is really what I'm trying to say, is that these daily, chronic, unconscious stresses that we create for ourselves unwittingly because of our childhood programming, they're the ones that undermine our health. And they need to be addressed. Going back to boundaries, and you know, I, I appreciate the wisdom in your words, but but going back to boundaries here, and mm-hmm. uh, you talk a lot about how people who have suffered have difficulties saying no, and there mm-hmm. are, there are impacts of of not saying no. I mean, ha- yeah. how can we be better at kind of recognizing our boundaries and when to say no? Well, I mean, let me ask you a simple question. Um, if that's okay with you, um, if you go back over the last week in your life, and I and I don't know you personally, so I don't know how you live or what do you have awareness you bring to every moment. You probably, I know you've done a lot of work uh, that I get from your words, so maybe this is not an issue for you. But let me just ask you this: in the last week or the last two weeks, were there times when there's a no in you that wanted to be said but you didn't say it? I mean, I'm I'm pretty good at saying no. 
I, uh, really? yeah, I, I mean, I, no, I mean, I, I've definitely not always been good at saying no. Okay. No, not, not, okay. So when, when you don't say no, what is the impact? When, when, when you don't say no, I'm not saying no. There's a the direct time. emotional effect and it, it weighs heavily. And I, and I start to think about that event and I replay it over and over in my mind and I and I start to really worry about you know why I didn't say no why okay. why I didn't speak up so this is an emotional impact right yes is there a physical impact yeah there's a it's a heaviness you know and it's like a gut okay. gut type feeling and that heaviness reflects activity in your nervous system and in your in your intestines in other words, to not say no is a direct physiological effect. And, and you are even aware of it. A lot of people are not even aware that they're doing this. So the impact is all the heavier. So <clears throat> virtually any chronic symptom like difficulty sleeping, dry mouth, back pain, uh, palpitations, uh, uh, nausea, stomach pain, uh, fatigue, just a whole range of physical symptoms that the body will throw at you to wake you up. It's the body ways. It's a It's the body's way of saying no if you don't. And you can learn from that. So whenever a you have physical symptoms, when you're asking me how can you learn from this, here's how you can learn from it. Whenever you have physical symptoms, migraine headaches, whatever it is, you get the physical help that you need. I'm not saying don't go, don't go, don't get physical symptom relief. I mean nobody's paid to suffer, mm -hmm. but at the same time, ask yourself. What am I not saying no to that my body is saying for me? What is it? Is my relation with my spouse or my work or, or something where I'm not saying no, where I need to say no? So you learn from your body. That's the first thing. The second thing is once a week you could sit down and ask yourself, where this week did I not say no? And what was the impact on me? And why did I not say no? Oh, well, I didn't say no because my belief was that if I say no, I won't be loved. In other words, I believe that love is conditional, and I'll never get unconditional love. I'll only get love on the condition that I behave myself for the sake of others. Now, is that how you really want to live your life? In other words, it's just a genuine and ongoing inventory of how authentic you're being. Yeah. And your body will give you signals, and you yourself can uh, do that kind of self-examination. Those are two very simple ways of learning. And then, of course, you can reflect back, well, where did I learn that love was conditional? Where did I learn that I was only lovable when I met the expectations of others? Oh, I learned that when I was three years old. Well, do I really want to live my life based on what a three-year-old believed about the world on a bad day? Is that how I want to live? Hmm. So it's not, that, it's not that difficult, but it does take conscious attention. Yeah. And, I mean, Dr. Mate, it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, I a lot of the people that I talk to and the people that I encounter and I, and I meet a lot of people, but it seems like we're all kind of walking around with this, with some level of trauma that we've experienced in our lives. And somehow it's filtered in, into through, through time into our uh, adult lives. And we're still managing this. I mean, do you, I mean, how do you regard this this system, like this sort of earth system on earth, incarnating here on earth in a spiritual way that there, you know, there are so many people suffering through trauma, through their lives? Well, first of all, let's define trauma. So trauma is not the bad things that happen. Trauma is the result of that 
external thing happening inside ourselves. So the traumatic um, event is not that my father hit me or my uncle abused me or my mother didn't listen to me. Uh, those are the external triggers, <clears throat> for sure. But the result of all that is I get disconnected from myself. Because as a child, the only way I can survive, if, if I'm totally alive to my emotions when all this is happening, it's unendurable for a small child. So the only way we survive is to get disconnected from ourselves. That is our protection from suffering. So I don't feel as much. I don't feel, I don't feel my gut feelings of, of nausea, disgust, and wanting to run away. I don't feel my gut feelings of, of anger. That's how I survive. <clears throat> that means I separate from myself. Now in our society, that is almost universal. And that's for a whole lot of reasons, but fundamentally it goes back to a system that makes it very difficult for parents to give their children unconditional love. I'm not saying it makes it difficult for them to feel unconditional love, because a lot of parents feel that, but it's very difficult for them to deliver it in a way that the child can receive it. Because the parents themselves are traumatized and stressed, and there's so many ways in which our society stresses parents and breaks up families. So you're quite right, as a result, virtually all of us are walking around with some degree of trauma, which is to say, some degree of separation from ourselves. And that's just how it is. And uh, the, the spiritual task, really, is to reconnect, which is also the emotional task, is to reconnect with our authentic selves. And, and, and see, the good news is that the trauma is not what happened 30 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 50 years ago. If that was the trauma, then there's nothing you can do about it. Because it happened. But if the trauma was that disconnection, that disconnection can be repaired this very moment. That can be uh, recovered. The connection with ourselves can be recovered. In fact, we talk about recovery as healing, and recovery means to find something. So in the case of addiction, for example, when people recover, what do they find again? They find themselves. <clears throat> and... Interestingly enough, I've looked after many dying people and um, in palliative care, for example. I've, had, I've heard this many times, and I guess you would too have heard this from people with, even with terminal illness or serious illness, that a person will make the astonishing statement that this illness is the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, have you heard those kind of statements? Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I have heard that mentioned. Why? Why do people say that? because it gave them something more precious than anything else, which is their connection to themselves. Hmm. It, forced them, it, it, it forced them to realize how disconnected they were. And that, uh, and that experience of our authentic selves is, the, is what one great spiritual te teacher calls this, the precious pearl. And that's what we lose. And it's so hard to get back to it. Uh, I mean, it's simple, but it's so difficult. I can tell you, in my own life, that is my, that is my task, you know, that is my ongoing uh, responsibility. And uh, the same thing for all of us, depending whether we're going to take that on or not. Take it on or not. And in our society, we're given so many blandishments, so many uh, ways of escaping from ourselves. It's all about escape. People, people's experience of themselves 
is unpleasant and it's stressful. And rather than realizing that that's because we're not connected to our two selves, we just look for the nearest path of escape from our discomfort. And so there's a million ways through the internet, through television, through movies, through food, through sex, through power, through wealth, through uh, sports, through any number of activities where we just run away from ourselves. Look, last night, I watched the end of the, the uh, basketball game between Cleveland and uh, Golden State. And uh, Cleveland won. It was an amazing game. And, you know, but uh, Amy was talking about how traumatized Cleveland had been for the last 50 years or 60 years because they hadn't won any kind of sports championship. That's total nonsense. So what if a bunch of men on a small court didn't score more, more points than some other bunch of men on the same court? How is that traumatic? <laughs> But it's but it, but it speaks to the the masses, um, the 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 hypnosis that people live under, and that hypnosis is designed, or at least serves the function of helping us um, distract ourselves from our our suffering, rather than seeking for the resolution inside ourselves by reconnecting. We want a sports team to score more points so we can feel better about ourselves for two minutes. It's very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Monte, I work in the, the startup industry as well. And I, I find that it's an incredibly stressful atmosphere to work in. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people around me, you see kind of fail and they fail at, you know, they, they fail at launching their companies. They fail at, they're working 12 hours a day. It's obvious that they're, they're suffering. And I mean, how does, how does what we do and our relationship to what we do affect our stress levels and longevity for our lives? The issue is not what we do. The issue is who we're being. And in our society, the emphasis is on what we do. <clears throat> and we do that because we learned very early in life that it's only through doing that we justify our existence. Because we weren't accepted. Our parents, and I speak of myself as a parent as well, I was not able to accept my kids just how they were, for who they were, and celebrate them for who they were, regardless of their doings. So we all learn that it's by doing that we validate our existence, that we gain value, <clears throat> that we find meaning. And so we put the emphasis on doing. And I'm telling you something, no amount of doing, even if you succeed, will ever give us that meaning. I know that personally. It doesn't matter how many hundreds of thousands of copies of books I've sold or how many standing ovations I get or how many people thank me for, for helping them somehow in their lives. Mm -hmm. That does not give me meaning or validation. There's a, there's a temporary excitement about it, perhaps. But in the morning, I still wake up if I'm in that mood with that same sense of meaninglessness and purposelessness. So I know that success doesn't give it to you. The people haven't had success yet. They think that if I'm only be successful, I'd be okay. The reason is that we'll never get that connection to ourselves or to reality or to truth through doing. It's not a question of doing, it's a question of being. And that, of course, is the spiritual quest of, 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 of connecting with being in our lives. So, you know, the conversation, we can talk about the physical aspects, the physiological aspects, the emotional aspects. Ultimately, it does come down to our capacity to be rather than to do. And when we're, when we're okay with our being, 
then what we do doesn't become so important. It doesn't become the testing ground on which we measure our value. And you're referring to the authentic, being the authentic self. That's what I'm referring to. Hmm. So it's intriguing. I mean, uh, so you cover in your work, you talk about caregiver stress. And I want to talk, I want to cover this a little bit. You say you talk about how the child feels the pain of the mother. I mean, how does, how does that happen? How does that work? Uh, children are narcissists. By that, I mean nothing negative. I mean simply that they make everything about themselves. That's just the nat- child's natural response. When the mother suffers, the child immediately believes that it's because of them, the child, and that it's their responsibility to fix it. So the way they, see, they need the mother. And if the way they can engage with the mother is to try to make the mother feel better somehow, or the, or the father for that matter, then that becomes their lifelong pattern. Now they become chronic caregivers. That's called the parentification of the child. It's a reversal of roles that happens for a lot of kids. And that reversal of role, as the great British psychiatrist John Bowlby pointed out, is almost inevitably a source of pathology in a child later on. So that, again, what we're talking about is not mistakes that we make or character faults. We're talking about coping mechanisms. So that taking care of the parent, let's say in in an alcoholic home, becomes almost automatically the responsibility of the child. But not only does it become their responsibility when they're children, it also becomes the personality that they adopt because that's how they survive. That means even after they no longer need to do it, they still keep doing it, no longer with their parents, but with everybody else. (laughs) That means they ignore their own needs. So they become, these people tend to go into healthcare work very often because there's a natural way to play out that scenario and they even get paid for it and they get a lot of praise for it, you know, like I have. But if we're doing it, and there's nothing wrong with caring for others, in fact, as human beings, we need to do that, obviously. But if we do it compulsively and chronically and unconsciously, then we overextend ourselves and we stress ourselves and we get sick. I'd like to deconstruct a little bit about your own personal journey and you know, you talked about success in a way um, or a little bit earlier. Where, I mean, at what point in your life did you feel like, was there, was there any point in your life where you felt like, okay, I've, I've made it or I've done it. I've helped enough people. I've reached enough people. This book has got, has sold enough copies. Has there ever been a period in that, in your life like that? Well, uh, let me, let me take a moment with that question. I can answer that on three levels that occur to me right now. The first level is that um, I'm satisfied that if my career ended right now, today, this is the last interview I ever gave and the last public uh, experience, profession that I've ever had, I, I could say to myself, okay, Gabo, you've done enough. You've done your work. And your work will continue, even if you don't continue. So on one level, I know that. Mm-hmm. And, it, and that's, you know, that's actually a source of peace for me. Number one. Number two, uh, I don't feel my work is finished yet. I, 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 I believe there's something more in me that I need to express and need to bring to the world. Hmm. And uh, we'll see how that plays out. But I hope I won't relate to that compulsively. Mm-hmm. 
So, so if I find out that is not the case, I hope I can peacefully accept that. And on a third level, there's still that workaholic tendency in me. I have to notice it regularly. I, this saying of no is something I have to really practice still. Because my natural tendency is, okay, here's another book somebody wants you to read and provide an endorsement for. Here's another speaking engagement. Here's somebody else who needs help who just can't find it anywhere else. You know, and uh, it's not easy for me to say no. Hmm. And, 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 and when I don't, that has an impact on my marriage and my personal life and my fatigue level and all that. So it's an awful, you know, your, your question the answer to your question lives on those three levels. Oh, I appreciate you attempting. I mean, I appreciate you answering them. You know, I, just jumping back into your work here, I, you know, you you talk about the medical lexicon kind of being dated, and you know, I I also wonder the same. I wonder why 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 doctors aren't focusing more on. I mean, you you say you talk about how the doctor patient relationship is sort of a transaction. You go there and you, you list your symptoms and the doctor says here, here's a medication to either make those symptoms go away, but there's never a question that is stated. Like what happened to you in your, like how was your childhood growing up? And, and, and never mind how's your childhood, how's your present relationship with your spouse? How's your relationship with yourself? How much stress do you take on? Um, when do you say no? Uh, where do you not saying yes, where you should be saying yes? Where is there some creative urge in you that needs to express itself, but you're suppressing it because you're too busy doing other things? So all these questions, never mind even about the childhood. If, see, if it was only the childhood, it wouldn't matter. The problem with the childhood is that it programs the present. So the childhood comes into it as the source of those patterns, but it's really the present that we have to concentrate on. And yeah, those questions don't come up. You're quite right. Well, there's a kind of a deal that's being made there, a transaction, as you say. Um, the patient says, I got the symptom, but I don't want to think about what it's all about. Just take away my symptom. And the doctor says, I know I have the, I have the knowledge to help mitigate the symptom, but I have no knowledge to look at the cause of it. Therefore, I'm going to give you the symptom relief. Thank you very much. Ten minutes is up. Six minutes is up. Here's your prescription. Goodbye. And that's the transaction. It's not just the doctor, it's also the patient. Now I find, however, that many, many patients, not everybody, some people find this stuff too difficult, too challenging, too painful to look at. But many, many, many people, once they're asked, once they're asked the right questions, do get interested in searching themselves for the answers. Hmm. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine works in, he's in, he's calls himself a transition specialist. He works in addiction and he, he goes to these clinics and he, he talks to people who are addicts and, and helps them. Um, and you know, we were, we were talking and we were having this conversation. He, he was talking about how the Medi Medicare system is so rigged by, through, you know, overbilling their patients, over, overbilling in the insurance companies, doctors having this sort of network of referral type systems. I mean, how do you respond to this? How do you re react to this? Well, there's truth in that. I mean, uh, Again, doctors who are paid to, you know, in, in an HMO where the doctor is basically told that you have six minutes per patient if you're a GP, what are you going to do? And furthermore, if you're a medical doctor and you read the medical uh, journals and, uh, and publications, 
and all the research is funded by drug companies because they're the ones with the money and they have no interest in looking at non-pharmaceutical ways of dealing with things. Why would they? That's not where their profits are. So that's if that, if that, first of all, if your limitation is that you can only spend so much time, number one. Number two, your training has in no way prepared you to deal with these issues. Number three, you're constantly bombarded by pharmaceutical propaganda. What are you going to do? So it, it, it's not the um, corruption of individual doctors that's at issue here. It's the whole system. It's rigged that way. It's set up that way. I mean, if we can just jump around a little bit and go back to the the mind-body connection, I mean, there's you talk a lot about how the central nervous system and the brain are constantly in communication. And It's not that the central nervous system and the brain are constantly in communication. The brain and the nervous system is the central nervous system. In other words, it's not like they're two systems in communication. Mm-hmm. The, the brain is the key part of the central nervous system, obviously. By, by central nervous system, we mean the brain and the spinal cord, basically. And then the nerves that extend from the spinal cord are what we call the peripheral nerves. Okay, but so, so it's just important to recognize that the brain, <clears throat> which is the part of the body that receives communication from the external world and interprets those communications and responds to them, is the key part of the central nervous system. And these systems are in constant communication, right? And there's more, there's more messages going from the body to the brain through the, the nervous system, right? Oh, well, yeah, the, the brain receives many more messages from the body than it sends out. <clears throat> and that's done through the autonomic nerve. So we're not aware of those communications, but they happen all the time. So your gut spends many more, sends many more messages to the brain than it receives, for example. That's why gut feelings are so important. Yeah, and and this is psychoneuroimmunology. Is that well? Well, the science that studies the unity of the psyche, which is the emotional centers in the brain, with the nervous system, with the immune system, <clears throat> with the hormonal system, the cardiovascular system. That science is called psychoneuroimmunology, which is just a fancy word for saying that it's all one. So, Dr. Mate, I mean, we're we're about to wrap up here in a few minutes, but I mean, what do you think that, you know, either a person can do with their lives, someone who may be listening to the show and is experiencing stress and is starting to recognize that they are struggling with stress? What is the single most important thing that they can do to better their lives? Well, um, I don't know that I can reduce it to a single most important thing, but the answer that leaps immediately to mind is they need to become conscious. Because these patterns that we automatically play out, these childhood scenarios that we keep reenacting and reenacting and reenacting, they're done unconsciously, not deliberately, not through our fault, and not even through the fault of our parents, because they did their best given what they had. They just multi-generationally transmitted patterns of trauma that we keep then manifesting in our lives. And we need to become conscious of how we do that and when we do it and why we do it. So the gain of consciousness is the, <clears throat> is the key. You know, the, 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 in the Bible, the Proverbs, it says the beginning of wisdom is the getting of wisdom. In other words, we have to wake up. So the very fact that somebody might hear this conversation 
And then might realize that, oh, I've been caught in these patterns. I see some of that in myself. That's the beginning of it. Now then, they have to go out and deepen their consciousness. How do they do that? Well, I hope some people will be inspired enough to read my books on addiction or stress and health or whatever. There's a lot of information in there. Or they find, not, not or, and they may then do the research for themselves. And they may start acting themselves once a day. Where did I not say no today? Where I needed to? Where did I not say yes today? Where I needed to? Uh, what is the impact of my not saying no? Just the same questions I put to you before. Right. What is my What is my body telling me? What kind of symptoms, what kind of messages is my body sending me? In other words, it takes awareness and paying of attention. It takes make, it, it takes the making of a decision that I matter and my health matters. And if something matters, I'm going to pay attention to it and not just keep living my life unconsciously and hoping that everything will turn out okay. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's so profound, just that, that sim, the simplicity of it. And I, and you know, that you have done all of this work to kind of bring this to the forefront and, and at least give people, you know, a resource to go to with your books and your writing. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's truly, truly great to hear someone, you know, actually discussing this. Well, thank you. And uh, people can hear more of that without any charge whatsoever, simply by finding my lectures or public talks on YouTube. People keep posting these on YouTube, and I don't post them, but they're on there. And lots of people find them of benefit. Just to my website, people can find them, or just going to YouTube, they can find them. In other words, and not just me, you know, there's lots of other, there's, I'm going to say lots of other people, but there are other people uh, delivering this kind of message, you know, Peter Levine on trauma, Bessel van der Kolk on trauma, Joan Borisenko on stress. Um, lots of people now, relatively speaking, compared to a little while ago, are now bringing this information to the forefront. So, you know, there's lots of good information out there once people start looking. Yeah, Dr. Monte. And on that note, what, what is your website? How can people get to your website? www.drgabormate.com Dr. Mate, sir, thank you so much for being here again. And I, I really, really appreciate the wisdom in your words. Thank you so much. Thank you for the interest in my work. Thanks a lot. This is The Human Experience. We will catch you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening.